And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. The purpose of every one of my podcasts is to share some piece of information that I believe can be a life changer. And uh, it doesn't always work, I'm sure, for everybody. Uh, But the whole intention is to share information that will help you build a better financial future, either by increasing returns or reducing risk or, if possible, both, of course. And there are several articles and podcasts that I think have had the most impact. As I've mentioned before, the ultimate buy and hold strategy takes you through all the different asset, particularly equity asset classes I think you should own. Uh, The fine-tuning your asset allocation, and there are a whole series of uh, tables for the S&P 500 in bonds, for worldwide uh, equity portfolio with bonds and all value with bonds and 70% uh, U.S. and 30% international for worldwide and, and, and uh, the all value. So a lot of information that either leads up to investing during a period of accumulation or for probably a third of a lot of your lives, uh, investing to take money out of your investments to live on. And uh, last um, two weeks ago, I did a podcast about fixed distributions. Fixed distributions, assuming that you retire with a certain amount of money. And I'm going to just say for the sake of this discussion that you've retired with enough. You have not oversaved. You've retired with enough. You want to retire now. You know, you could work longer maybe to uh, to put more money away, but there's no time like the present to retire and start enjoying life, particularly if you have a spouse that's already retired. So uh, we talked about, I talked about the fixed distributions, where the theory was that you would start out with a certain percentage of the original amount, three, four, five, six. And what happens if you start out with that amount and then each year you increase the amount with the impact of inflation starting in 1970 and ending in 2017? Now, we know there were a lot of cases there where you ran out of money before you ran out of life. But that is particularly is, is shown to make the point that if you have not oversaved, there's not much wiggle room for, for getting it wrong. And so it suggests that 3 or 4% distribution is probably relatively safe, uh, when you retire with enough and adjust for inflation. But five and six is pretty dicey. As a matter of fact, uh, I I hope that you will download four tables. I'm going to try to keep this simple. There are four tables I will use uh, that are part of the distribution uh, series that I have done. Two of them are about fixed distribution. One is table number three, The other is table number 12. 
And then there are two tables that are variable distributions. I'll talk about that in just a second. That would be table 17 and table 16. Those are going to be the focus of this presentation. But there is a strategy that is based on having more than enough. And the more uh, than enough that you have, uh, potentially uh, the better this whole process gets. In fact, I have, when I first came out with this article and this discussion about variable distributions, I don't know, 10 plus years ago, I don't remember the year it happened, but I initially called it the ultimate distribution strategy. And um, I've used that same title for this podcast because that's what I really believe about this combination of different levels of distribution along with a uh, uh, and having oversaved. Now, you, if you've been to my workshops, you know that I talk about the importance of defense. And so I want to go over those defensive steps that I think every investor should take, e even a, a, a first-time. Most of them can apply to a first-time investor, and certainly there's, uh, there are some very important defensive steps uh, once we get into retirement. But let me go through these uh, defensive steps. First of all, when you diversify amongst many companies, that creates a defense, a defense against the possibility of a, for example, a single company uh, failing. But when you own, as my wife and I do, over 12,000 different companies, you don't have any significant risk of the failure of one or two or even 10 companies because you have thousands and thousands of companies. And the next level of defense I recommend is defense across many equity asset classes. As you know from the ultimate buy and hold strategy, if you've read that uh, article, that I, I would like you to have positions in U.S. equities, big, small, blend, blend being a combination of value and growth, and also value as a standalone uh, asset class. I would also like you to have U.S. REITs. And along with all those U.S. holdings, I'd like you to have international holdings that are very similar, the large and the small and the value and the growth and also, I'd like a position in emerging markets. The reason I want that is I want that for defense against any one of those asset classes going through an extended period of bad returns. And the ultimate problem, I think, that I've seen investors have, particularly those who started uh, their retirement, let's say, in 2000, thinking the market was going to continue to be good and for the next 10 years, while the S&P 500 actually lost money, about 1% a year over that 10-year period, a diversified, broadly diversified portfolio uh, of equities was up 7 to 9%. Again, defense. And then I want you to have defense uh, spreading amongst many international markets. I already mentioned those uh, international holdings. 
but I want you to have a combination of U.S. and dozens of international markets represented. Another step that's defensive is adding fixed income to the portfolio to limit the losses during the very worst of, uh, of times for equities. And uh, while we're in the fixed income arena, let's talk about the defensive position of having all U.S. government bonds. Uh, and, and, and that particularly becomes important when we get into a catastrophic equity market like 2008, where corporate bonds went down, so did stocks, of course, but government, U.S. government bonds went up. And that is the tendency in the catastrophic event for people to look for the, the safest place to be. Another defensive aspect of investing in, in uh, fixed income is to say, stay short to intermediate in terms of the maturity so that when interest rates do climb high quickly, that you aren't going to expose yourself to the, the larger losses that you would sustain with long maturities. Another defense that you can take is to use all index funds. All index funds mean uh, defensively, acting defensively with lower expenses, acting defensively with lots of diversification, acting defensively is to stay in the asset class you thought you were investing in, whereas actively managed funds oftentimes drift from what you thought they were going to do to other asset classes. And of course, with index funds, you're going to uh, eliminate uh, you're going to eliminate the uh, uh, the active trading, and and that would lead theoretically uh, to uh, better returns in the taxable part of your portfolio because the tax efficiency of index funds are better than actively mutual actively managed mutual funds. Another defensive step that you can take is to save way more than you really need to retire. My wife and I did that. I kept working until we had at least twice as much money as we needed uh, in terms of annual distributions so that we could take more money to, to enjoy, to share, to give away. Um, all of those things that are important to us were possible by over-saving. Remember, when you save with enough, you really can't, you can't get too aggressive as to how much money that you take out of your investments. Another defensive step is to take money out on a variable basis. A percentage of each year's value of the portfolio. For example, let's say you're taking out 4% a year. Now, my wife and I happened to take it out at the first of the year because that's another defensive step we take. We don't want to be thinking about living off of the money and taking the money out of our portfolio when the market is going up and down. So once a year, we go in there, take the money out, put it aside to live on. Now, if you do it on a fixed basis, you might start on a million dollars, taking out 40000 And if you had inflation, the following year you would pay out 40000 plus the 
additional inflation. And you would do that every year so that your original $40,000 distribution keeps up with inflation. But when you do this based on a percentage of assets that are in the account, forget about inflation. You've oversaved. You take, when you take money out, uh, you don't have to worry about things adjusting to inflation because you're already taking more money than you need. So if you start out and take 4% at the, uh, the, first, of the, uh, the first year, then a year later, the market has gone up. You get 4% of that higher number. If the market has gone down, you get 4% of the lower number. And you will be amazed at the impact of that defensive step to reduce the amount that you take out when the market goes down. I'll share that with you uh, in, in just a, a few minutes. So let me show you these defensive steps at work with numbers in tables that I love so much. But as I've said so many times, I think they tell an amazing story about, in this particular case, a 48-year period, a 48-year period that includes a terrible, terrible decline in 73 and 74, and almost exactly the same decline from 2000 through 2002, in another almost exactly the same decline in the 2007 through 2009 bear market. And, of course, it includes that one day, October 19, 1987, when the stock market fell over 20% in one day. They're all in there. And there's an energy crisis in there, and there are political crises uh, in there, and uh, there are some great bull markets in there. It's all in there. And, of course, the next 48 years is not going to look like the last but this is the way the market tends to go, up and down and down and up. And, uh, and so while the story will be different, the end result will likely be very similar. Periods of great returns, periods of terrible returns, and most of the periods in between and relatively boring. But I, wondered, I want to focus first on table number three. Because this is the table in that series that we did on fixed distributions where you started with a million dollars. And by the way, table number two took out 40000 instead of 50000 And all of the columns, almost all of the columns, made it to the bottom of the page. But all you had to do was make one change. And it didn't even probably seem like a huge change. But instead of starting out with a $40,000 distribution, you started out with a $50,000 distribution. And as you see in Table 3 here, you do not make it to the bottom of the page. Now, if you do the same thing, just for your interest, with the Worldwide Balance Portfolio, Table 12 you'll notice that with that combination, big, small, value, growth, that's the 12,000-plus securities. That's the index approach. This is all of those uh, defensive steps involved, with one exception, 
you take a fixed distribution instead of the defensive variable distribution I'm going to show you in one second. But you can see by making the decision to have a more broadly diversified portfolio, you ended up making more money, more diversification, less risk, etc. Now, in both of those cases, table 3 and tw table 12, I want you to notice if you look at the S&P 500 all equity portfolio, that's the scary part of the portfolio for people who don't like risk. You can look at the end of 1974 and see that you were with the S&P 500 table 3 down to $677,000. And by the way, with the worldwide strategy you were down to $774,000. Better than the S&P 500 on its own, but still, for somebody who's in retirement, that really is feels like a catastrophic event. And what you don't see on this page is how people felt at the end of 1974. They felt like the stock market was not to be trusted anymore, so they started to put their trust in the bond market instead. Well, if they had stayed with the stock market, you can see you would have done just fine. But that's all about fixed distributions and adjusting for inflation. But what if, and it's a huge what if, that in theory you can decide to choose. And that is, what if you save more than you really need? And let's just, for the sake of discussion, say that we compare that fixed distribution with the variable distribution. Remember what I said at that distribution, the variable distribution is, is taking a certain percentage every year. As the market goes up, you get a raise. As the market goes down, you get a cut in pay. So let's look at table seven for a second. This is taking out 5% of the original amount. Now, remember back there on table three, when you did that, you ran out of money less than halfway through the 48-year period. But notice here in table seven, you not only get to the bottom of the page, but you have money left over for others. And I would guess a whale of a lot of peace of mind compared to the person who had not saved the extra but I don't think many people are going to put all their money in equities in retirement. Now, in theory, somebody who's oversaved could do that. But if you've oversaved and you want to spend more, why take any undue risk? So what you could do is what my wife and I have done, and that is that we have put our portfolio together 50-50 stocks and bonds, as you can see on Table 7. The difference is, is that we don't use the S&P 500. We use the worldwide strategy that I've talked so much about. But let's look at the S&P 500 table, Table 7, and look at the columns under 50% S&P 500, 50% U.S. bonds. Now, the market did go down. The market went down in 1974 
to $893,000. So, it does mean that you would have to, along the way, have been willing to live on as little as $44,661. Now, let me paint a real picture about oversaving. Let's say that your cost of living is a million, I'm sorry, is $40,000. Let's start there. Uh, let's say that instead of saving a million, you saved a million and a half. So what does that mean you could do? Well, what you could do, number one, is because you have all that extra money, instead of taking out 4%, which would have given you on a million dollars, $40,000, you take out 5%. Now, for those who are interested, you'll be able later on to see table eight, which takes out 6%. But let's just look at this 5%, which before, of course, ran out of money when you did it on a fixed basis. But let's say you've got a million and a half and you take out 5%. That means you're going to take out $75,000 instead of the money you really needed, which was $40,000. Now what you can choose to do is travel more, eat out at fancier restaurants, buy a more expensive car, give away money to children and charity. you got a lot of choices with what you can do between that $40,000 and uh, that $75,000 that you chose to take out because you wanted to take it out rather than needing to take it out. And if the market goes down you're going to take out less like you did in 1975. The 50-50 strategy at the end of 74, this is for table 7, was down to 893,000. You take 5% of that, that gives you 44,661. Not catastrophic. Might not be what you expected, but sometimes the market does go down. You better expect that. But you'll notice as the years go on, the amount of money that is distributed goes up and up. And finally, in 2017, if, if you retired when you were 50 and you were still alive and kicking here, you would take a, dis, a distribution of $255,000. And by the way, you would have had a year-end balance of $5.4 million. Not bad. And with an asset class, you have a lot of trust. But go with me to table 16. Table 16 is also uh, a variable distribution strategy. Also starts out with a 5% distribution. And then each year, whatever's left over, you take out at a at a 5% rate. And notice, at the end of 1974, while the S&P 500 as the equity class ended with about uh, 893, here you end with 948. And instead of having $5 million left over, you've got almost $9 million left over at the end of the 48-year period. And instead of having taken out 
uh, 7.5 million with the S&P, uh, 50-50, you take out 11.5 million. Huge advantage over this 48-year period with the combination of big and small. Remember, small is more risky than big, and small historically has paid a premium. And you've got more value in this portfolio. And remember, value historically has a better rate of return than growth because value, there's a reason these companies are out of favor. There's a risk there that is reflected in the pricing. So why do I like this strategy? Well, I like this strategy, and I've talked about this in the past, because I think it's a perfect strategy for a couple where one is a spender and one is a saver. One is not afraid of the future, and maybe the other one is a little bit afraid of the future. One doesn't have scarcity issues, and the other one does have scarcity issues. And in our particular case, my wife and I, uh, my wife sees money as something to spend and enjoy and give away. Whereas I kind of hold my cards closer to, to my chest. I tend to be more conservative, more of a saver first. Build the pile of money up greater before you take it out. But the beauty is this. When you have a variable distribution and you have oversaved, then you can take out more when the market goes up. And as I've told my wife many times, historically the market goes up about 70% of the time and down about 30% of the time. I'm talking about one year at a time. And that means that she is going to get more to spend the following year uh, in, more, in more years than I am, then we're going to take less. Yes, we'll have some years the market goes down. But I want you to realize something here. When you look at the difference between uh, table uh, three, and, and you notice that table three with the S&P 500, the, every column runs out of money. And then you look at table uh, seven, and you see that the S&P 500, in every case, the money goes to the bottom. The reason that works that way is because you had a defensive strategy of how you took the money out. And believe it or not, that difference is the difference between taking a fixed amount and increasing it each year for inflation and being willing to take a variable amount. That is totally the difference. And it is that one last defensive step that I think is so important, but it comes with oversaving. Because you see, if you're really trying to increase the amount of money that you have to live on, you have to be able to adjust for inflation. So for example, in Table 3, by 1975, you had to take out $68,000 to keep up with inflation. In Table 7, where it is a 
flexible distribution, I'm looking at the all equity here, it got down to $34,000. Oh, that would have been okay if it had a million and a half. And you took 5% of the million and a half, you'd have, as the market went down, you'd have more than you need to cover your needs. First the needs, and then the desires and the wants. We want to make sure that everybody gets their needs met. And those who have been able to accumulate more, however they got there, whether they were lucky to be born to, the, to people of wealth or whether they were lucky to go to work for Microsoft in 1999 or, or they were lucky to win the lottery, however you get there, by hook or by crook, there is a huge payoff, not just financially, but I think emotionally, when you are able to live on a flexible distribution. Now, here's a question I'm often asked. Why not go to 6%? Well, the reason that my wife and I have decided to take out the 5% instead of 6 is that the 6% means we'd have more money to spend, but we're trying to save some money to be able to help some organizations after we are dead and buried, or cremated, whatever it might be, but we're gone. And, uh, and, and so we have chosen the 5%, which, by the way, is actually more money than we need because uh, we have money left over. And so, by the way, uh, we make sure that we either spend or give away uh, all of that 5% each year. We don't save any of it. It is, it is meant to be used in this particular year. But if you're not uh, thinking about the next generation and you have oversaved, I would not be afraid of uh, taking out 6% a year. Now, one of the, the, the sh one of the problems for society is that, uh, according to surveys, some 30% or more are uh, taking out 7% or more each year. And most of those people, it's really because they don't have enough. It's not because they've oversaved. It's because they simply don't uh, have enough and they need that big a distribution in order to meet their cost of living. Another question I get is, can we really count on returns uh, for the next 48 years to be uh, similar to the returns of the last 48? I, I think in terms of the equity part of the portfolio, I, I, I think it's, it's possible that that particular 48-year period the compound rate of return was about 10.5. The period from 1928 until 1969, right before this 48-year period started, the return was 9.1 for the S&P 500, not 10.5. So at least looking prior to this period, you would have gotten lower returns. Now, that period of 1928 to to 1969 includes the Depression. Now, we, we maybe would like to think that we won't see that kind of depression again, but 
Uh, I can tell you that from 1929 to 1932, uh, the rates of return counting inflation were virtually the same in 29 to 32 as they were from 69 to 74 and 2000 through 2002, very similar. So I, I would expect that we will see some terrible, terrible periods. But as I mentioned earlier, there were a bunch of terrible periods uh, in this last 48 years. I do think that it's smart to move over a couple of columns. For example, when I look at table number 16, this is the moderate worldwide strategy. That's the distribution of uh, 5% uh, 5 variable. And let's say that you have the risk tolerance for 60-40. equity, 40% fixed income. And what I see here is that uh, the, the 60%, 40% strategy had uh, distributions of 13.4 million and left 11.2 million uh, to heirs. And by the way, the last year's distribution was over $500,000. One of the interesting challenges when you look at this page of numbers, if you think about it, you're not taking out a whole lot when you start, and by the time you're in your 90s, the distributions are huge. A little backwards, isn't it? Well, that's a whole other problem. But just for the sake of discussion, Let's say you go for 60-40, but you end up getting what 40-60 offers. 40% equity, 60% bonds. Now, the first thing that's going to happen is that your worst period is going to be better because you have more bonds in the portfolio. But as I look at this entire period, I see that instead of a distribution of 13.4 million, it's a distribution of 9.7 Instead of having a year-end balance of $11 million, it's about $7 million. So, is that reasonable? Okay, are we going to cut it in half? What are we going to do? Are we going to go down uh, <laughs> and, 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 and assume lower end result? That's fine. Uh, my sense is, even on an inflation-adjusted basis, you're going to be okay. And, again, you're in control, theoretically. I mean, your, your health may not allow you to work as long as you'd like to work. Uh, or maybe the boss feels like you shouldn't work as long as you'd like to work, and you end up getting laid off. Now, what I, what I do know is that in my case, my wife and I decided to have twice as much as we needed. But I think if you have if you have 50% more, I think you're going to be fine. But what if? Because here's another question I get often. What if you start out, let's say you've got a million and a half, you only really need a million, and the first thing that happens is the market goes down from a million and a half down to a million three. Well, you've still got more than you need. And at some point, what you could choose to do is to go to the, um, the, the, the fixed distribution. 
instead of the great variable distribution that you thought you were going to have because you oversaved. We always have to remember that there is a phenomenal amount of luck in this process. Remember that from 1975 to 1999, the S&P 500 compounds at over 17%. From 2000 to 2017, it compounds at less than 5.5%. Luck. And so we do the best, certainly, as all the things I mentioned. And I'd like to know that each and every one of you are, are, are doing this in some fashion, whether you're at Vanguard or you're using a DFA advisor or ETFs. But remember, defense with thousands of companies, defense with 10 asset classes or more, defense having money both in the U.S. and, and in international markets, including emerging markets, Defense by adding the right amount of fixed income to address whatever your loss limits might be. Defense using U.S. government bonds in the fixed income part, particularly, by the way, in the tax-deferred part of your portfolio. Defense by having the bonds be short to intermediate. Defense by using index rather than actively managed mutual funds. Defense by saving more than you need. Defense by taking uh, variable distributions so that you cut your income after a bad year and you raise it after a good year. And there are a whole bunch of other defensive steps, little things like my wife and I taking the money at the first of the year instead of taking it during the year out of a market that's going up and down and up and down. And another defensive thing that we do is we have an advisor who takes care of things. Are we going to have less money uh, at the end of our lives? Actually, even though we pay fees, I don't think we're going to have less money because I think the professional advisor tends to all the details that, quite honestly, I would not make the focus of my life. While I love teaching, people how to invest and do better with their money, I actually don't have that much interest in doing it myself. So I hope this discussion is helpful. I love your questions on fixed and variable distributions. I want to make sure that you understand not only the upside, I want to make sure you understand the downside. So let me know how you feel, what more you'd like to understand. And please share this work along with the other work on our site. Particularly, I think, if you had a friend, I would direct them to the best advice link because in there is the ultimate buy and hold. In there is the fine-tuning. In there are the distributions. And oh, by the way, in there is the, is the article about how to turn $3,000 into $50 million for a grandchild or a child. Thank you, as always, for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.